Welcome to another episode of Braincast. Uh, my name is Long, and today I'm joined with uh, Professor Jamie Ward, who is the Director of Sussex Neuroscience and the President of the British Association of uh, Cognitive Neuroscience. So thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. So how did you get interested in human cognitive neuroscience, and especially the field of individual differences in perceptual experiences? Yeah, so my uh, background is that I started studying my PhD cases who've had brain damage. So there's a, an author called Oliver Sacks who published really interesting cases. There's a famous book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Yeah, I uh, yeah. Marks. yeah. No, so yeah. I love the way that he kind of brought these cases uh, to life. And it, it was scientific, but, but he was kind of really exploring different ways of perceiving the world. You can't imagine what it's like to kind of lose half of your vision or not be able to attend to objects there or to be able to say nouns but not be able to say verbs uh, and bizarre things like this so my PhD was looking at neuropsychology and this was very much more from a uh, brain damage perspective and then over time I became interested in the idea that actually people experience the world differently without having a hole in their head without having a stroke or uh, some other brain damage. It is just the way that their brains are wired. Uh, so for me, it, it's it's kind of uh, it's the same intellectual tradition, but a whole different kind of evidence base uh, that, that there are, these kind of unusual cases exist, whether we, we damage our brain or not, they're just part of uh, human variability. Yeah, it's really interesting. That, that book you mentioned is so interesting, isn't it? I remember they said, um... These these twins and they could, you could say you know what, what day of the week they land on in like four hundred you know weeks uh, and they could give exactly the day of the week and and the days. Yeah, there. prime numbers was their thing as yeah. well. Yeah, so we would now kind of understand that they had like autism, but at the time this wasn't really the the, the scientific evidence base of autism. It's like you know what is yeah. it? Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so would you mind giving us like a brief overview of the projects you're working on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So we've just finished a, um, a, a kind of what I call it the 100 Brains Project to collect 100 brain scans of people with synesthesia. So synesthesia is experiencing, for example, colours from music. So you don't just uh, hear music, you might see it. Um, the idea here is that having synesthesia is kind of fascinating in its own right, but actually it's indicating what I would call a kind of neurodiverse phenotype. So synesthetes don't just differ from by having unusual experiences. They've got better memory, uh, they're more likely to go into certain occupations and jobs like creative industries. So, so it's about understanding a kind of more broadly how individual differences in the way people think and behave map onto the brain. Mm. Um, the other kind of project which relates to synesthesia, but it's a little bit different, is around um, sensory sensitivity. So this is more closely linked to, to autism. So some people, when they listen to, for example, the buzzing of a fluorescent light or certain sounds would, would um, drive them mad. They're very sensitive. Going into the, the shop lush is just way too kind of overpowering. Uh, Often the, the curious thing about this is that it happens across multiple senses. So we know it's not to do with the eyes or the ears. It's some something quite central uh, and that's obviously distributed because obviously your hearing and vision senses are not near each other. So it, it's almost like a brain level difference here that we, we don't quite understand uh, how, how this works, but, but it's clearly something to do with perhaps not being able to predict information accurately. So it always comes as a surprise or overwhelming. That would be one um, framework. 
And then there's another um, condition called misophonia, which is um, related to sensory sensitivity, but it's very specific to certain sounds, or it appears to be specific. So it might be the sounds of slurping or chewing. Uh, again, it sounds a little bit weird and quirky, but actually for these people, it can be very devastating. They don't eat with their families uh, and so on because they can't bear to be in the room with, when somebody's making the sound. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because I remember you, you released some papers recently about that, didn't you? That's, it sounds yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. We have a research grant looking at this. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to kind of you kind of touched on synesthesia then uh, uh, about what it is, but like, could you, could you develop on some uh, examples of it? You kind of mentioned about like visualizing a uh, color in certain ways and stuff, but have you got any other examples? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so the most commonly studied studied one is having colors for letters and words. So uh, as you look at a, a black text on a screen, you might see either a colored copy in your mind's eye, or you might literally project on the screen that you'll see they're black, but it's like there's a light shining through. I don't have any of this myself, but this is the way it's described. It's very hard to imagine. Yeah. Colors for music is a little bit more like how you would imagine, you know, it's if you were to paint it kind of trippy fireworks, you know, pop spangs, lines, and, 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 and so on. So a beautiful kind of kaleidoscopic reaction. Uh, but you can have it in other senses. So one of the first case studies I came across, my kind of Oliver Sacks type discovery, is a man who tastes words. As you uh, speak to him, it's like an ebb and flow of flavors and, and things uh, that, that are on his tongue. One of the other things that, that I, uh, a type that I suppose I discovered, I mean, most of these things were discovered way before me, is that I sent an email out to undergraduates saying, here's this curious thing, synesthesia. Does anybody think they have this? And somebody said, well, I don't know whether this is synesthesia, but when I see somebody being touched, I feel that on my own face. So as I do this, she would feel a uh, like a tactile sensation or pressure, uh, like on the mirror image of her cheek. Wow, that is, um, before I uh, read some of your stuff, I've never heard of anything like similar to this before. And it must be quite hard to try and understand, because if you can't relate to it at all yourself, it must be really hard to kind of figure out what's going on these in these brains and and how they're kind of experiencing this you know um yeah i mean i, I yeah I, I think from kind of philosophical point of view that you know there people wonder you know is your experience the same as mine when i see red is my red the same as your red and you know it's very hard yeah. to answer that but actually somebody is saying i see red when somebody else is saying i see nothing so it's not even the same experience it is something that goes kind of beyond that yeah mm -hmm. But that, that kind of brings me on to my next question was like, um, <clears throat> in one of your papers, you mentioned that we should almost reconsider what we, we see as, as a normal neurodevelopmental trajectory into our own kind of experiences of reality. Uh, and and that, that word normal, like obviously, like you mentioned there, we all have different ways of taking in reality. So how can you say like what's, you know, the, the most common or what's the, the normal version? Yeah. Uh, can you expand on what you meant by that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I certainly don't have any commitment to the word normal. I, I, I think the way that I kind of imagine my research is that you're kind of almost chipping away at this idea of normal until there's nothing left. Uh, you know, and synesthesia is maybe a few percent of the population, but I don't believe that the world is divided into 3% synesthetes and 97% normal or whatever. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think you can take this idea and chip away at it. But I mean, in the, the old days, everything was divided into normal and abnormal and, and so on. And th this is clearly, I mean, it's not just political correctness, it's just wrong scientifically, you know, that there are these variations and spectrums. 
but but I, I think what we don't have is a clear understanding of what's going to replace that. So we can easily replace it with the idea, well, everybody's unique. Uh, but but even that doesn't really capture it itself. So if everyone's unique, then everybody has to have their own particular explanation for them. And that, that's not a scientifically uh, you know, a grounded way forward either. So I don't believe that carving the world into normal, abnormal, synesthetic, non-synesthetic is, is the right way, but nor do I, I, I think that we've got this. So it's almost like there are types or there might be kind of brain types that, that you could have that you identify as having a synesthetic brain type or uh, kind of autistic trait type or, or, or so on. And you might kind of be at the intersection of multiple Venn diagrams and this might be a better way uh, of describing that in effect that you would have you know your brain might be a mixture of say five or six different brain types uh including for example some of the ones that you know that are known not talk about like maybe there is a male on average brain type and female brain type these kind of controversial ideas that you know that there is some scientific kind of credibility behind them uh, and you might be you know, a male synesthete high on the autism spectrum, and you, you, you've got multiple features across these different traits. And, you know, at this point, what is normal? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I say you kind of mentioned it's not as simple as like black and white and non synesthetes and synesthetes, you know. So I guess you kind of base it on a, on a spectrum, but has it become hard to kind of uh, where you value that spectrum because everyone's you know everything's different so do you, are you able to kind of categorize it a bit into certain common traits or is it completely diverse and different and you can't even put it uh, you know in categories or or, or a spectrum you know? yeah you can't kind of I mean, the interesting thing about some things is that some things fall naturally into it than others so maybe autism is something that might fall more naturally into this if you think about you know, do you hallucinate or don't you? You know, what, what is in between that? You know, it's like, do you half hallucinate? Do you three quarters hallucinate? What, what is that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you, you you could kind of go down the same route with synesthesia, couldn't you? I mean, I, I've argued this as well, that actually, that you either have colours for letters and numbers or you don't. But, but actually, um, synesthesia itself isn't just having colourful letters and numbers. So the seats kind of think differently, so they have more stronger mental imagery. So if I, if I ask you to think about a bonfire or think about touching fur, people differ in their ability to do this, but so the seats are very good at doing this. Mm. Uh, they have other traits, like they're good at spotting kind of certain attention to detail. Uh, if you ask them to think of creative uses of a brick or a coat hanger, they do objectively better on these things. So, that, so I would say that synesthesia, although it, to some extent there are these binary things that you have or don't have, they kind of emerge from a whole set of other differences that themselves might kind of continuously vary uh, throughout the population. Mm, and that's yeah, kind yeah. of how I would think about it. So, you know, th there are kind of certain traits that emerge, but they're emerging from a whole set of dispositions and biases that, that, that vary continuously from one person to another. So, uh, yeah, so you kind of mentioned that they have this unique ability to do certain things that certain people wouldn't be able to do. And, and would you say that that could provide uh, maybe cognitive benefits in their daily life? Um, yeah, we, the, yeah. When we've kind of asked Tennessee, so what are your strengths and weaknesses? I mean, there, there are certain things that come out of being better in uh, memory and, um, you know, good at learning languages, which I think is actually a memory thing as well. But they're, they're also very good at perceptual discrimination. So spotting things that other people don't notice. 
Uh, and we don't find many weaknesses. I mean, cynicists often report them, but typically we find that they're not very prominent with this. So it seems to be, you know, a particular niche around um, uh, yeah, certain abilities that, that, that go hand in hand with synesthesia. I mean, at that point, people say, well, why aren't we all synesthetics if it's beneficial? And, you know, mm -hmm. it might be beneficial for some members of the, the population to have these advantages and other members of the population to have that. And in effect, you're trying to keep your, your set of um, skills balanced, you know, throughout the population rather than, you know, being uber in one individual. It might also be the case that it does uh, it's a bit like sitting on a knife edge that actually, you know, you get the benefits, but you're at risk of certain other things. Mm -hmm. So we find that uh, that synesthetes do have higher uh, kind of uh, certain autistic tendencies. Um, there's evidence that they're more likely to have PTSD after a trauma. And again, why is this? Why having coloured letters and numbers make them more susceptible to PTSD? Mm -hmm. And my guess is it probably doesn't. It's something more around if you've got very... Um, good memory and vivid, uh, you know, imagery that in effect you're more prone to flashbacks and you're, you know, having good memory is a good thing, but maybe there are things you want to forget. Yeah, uh, and yeah. in that case, you know, is having good memory a good or a bad thing? I, uh, you know, I don't know. If you want to forget things, it's not, it's going to, to work against you, isn't it? Yeah, I guess if you can kind of reconstruct a memory quicker, then I, I can see how that makes you more prone to uh, flashbacks or traumatic events. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so you, you mentioned also, uh, in one of your recent papers, you, you say that there's a genetic link between synesthesia and autism, uh, and you kind of said this is something you've already predicted. Uh, what, what's the kind of overlapping characteristics? And I could, you've already kind of touched on it a bit, but I, mm. I think there's a big overlap between the two. Um, yeah, I'm yeah sure yeah i'm involved in kind of uh, helping to collect genetic material so just saliva samples from citizens it's colleagues in the netherlands who are looking at this and mm. um, yeah in, in terms of the actual kind of shared genes we don't really have uh much in the way that's concrete but we do know from kind of uh familial patterns that in effect autism and synesthesia are more likely to co-occur within the same families and more so than other kind of control conditions that we uh looked at so the, you know, the genetic link, I would say, is still more suggestive rather than proven, but, mm. but there is, it would be hard to think of an obvious environmental account within the family that, that would give rise to the association. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the classic defining symptoms of autism have historically been uh, around social communication problems. We do find that synesthetes can report that, but actually the, the thing that, that does stand out is um, around the heightened sensory sensitivity and actually so finding sounds and lights aversive tastes and smells mm -hmm. uh, and not just the ones that are in their synesthesia they find a whole range of things aversive whether it participates in their synesthesia or not mm -hmm. uh kind of an attentional differences so um attention to detail distraction and, and, and so on are the ones that, that are kind of much more heightened there are some things where they clearly do uh, differ in ways that are kind of puzzling, but interesting puzzling. So autism is almost certainly more common in men than women. I mean, I, I think it is kind of biased by, you know, diagnosis and sampling, but even when that's taken into account, autism is more common in men than women. So the season, not so. There is no gender bias. And in fact, we find that 
uh, uh, female synesthetes are just as likely to be high in the autism spectrum as our males. They both get oh. uh, a kind of a boost. So again, this doesn't quite make sense, but, but the way that I would think about it is that again, autism isn't just one thing and nor is it just a linear thing. There are kind of a constellation of different traits and some of those might be more closely linked to synesthesia than others. And some might be more closely linked to, you know, biological sex than others. Uh, and, and what's your like your sort of common uh, lab techniques that you're taking to to look into synesthesia? Yeah, so I, I mentioned uh, uh, MRI and brain imaging. This would be one. Um, often, you know, it is kind of cognitive computer-based tests still that, that we do. Mm. And actually, we were doing this uh, pre-coronavirus just because it's our way of getting larger samples over the internet. So yeah. uh, because we're studying rare people, doing things online is, is still kind of very important for us. We are involved again in collecting genetic material from people with synesthesia, but this won't be analysed by our group at Sussex. There would be others uh, looking at this. In the past, we've done uh, other things like brain stimulation. So whether or not you can switch synesthesia kind of on or off by applying um, magnetic stimulation of the brain. There are a few studies on that. And we've, we've done a couple over the years. More relaxed question. Uh, if you could have a, a budget 10 times the size of right now and you could kind of go in harder into any area you want to go into, what would be your, your next big step? What would you want to find out most next? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I, I, in terms of bigger science questions, I, I think it's the, the question you asked earlier about kind of what is a normal, what, if, if normal isn't one thing, then what is it? Uh, how would you actually go about funding that? Well, to well, some extent, I, I think that there is research out there that, that's doing this sort of thing. So there is something called the UK Biobank, which it will have 100,000 kind of MRI scans uh in there uh for example that, that i could download I and mean, the, the problem for me is that within that they've not asked the questions that i would want them to ask so you know it, it would be either adding the questions or starting again with your own uh you know biobank in which you're you're doing this but but i very much think that big data is the way forward making mm -hmm. use of you know large data repositories where they have all the genetic material they've got all the other things uh, but but it's being able to ask the right questions, uh, you know, around, you know, being, finding new ways of uh, exploring how different people see the world, you know, whether uh, some people kind of update their predictions a lot more that they, they kind of see things kind of as they really are versus, you know, being biased by your own history and your own expectations, you know, whether there are these kinds of styles and whether these styles kind of map onto, I suppose, more classic conditions like autism schizophrenia and, and, and so on having a more modern twist on that so for me those are the kind of the big science questions that, that, that kind of excite me yeah yeah i can see that um it kind of makes me think you know you talk about these big data banks i've just was watching earlier the the deep mind the uh what's it called again you know the the ai that managed to find the protein shape of all the proteins in the body or something crazy like that. I feel like maybe that's the next step. You know, you talked about this bank of uh, these brain scans to be able to kind of use some sort of uh, machine learning program to kind of decipher through them really quickly and find common traits, you know, pluck out these. Well, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I've tried to learn in recent years is to do this. And it's very much the way forward is that people with backgrounds in psychology or biology either need to train themselves to, to do this or they need to collaborate with 
you know, people who can, you know, step in and give them that, that advice. But yeah, so for example, with the, the 100 brains we did scan, we can find, you know, biomarkers in the, the brain that look like citizens, like this person looks like they're a citizen. We don't know for sure, uh, you know, but we might be able to go into these big data sets and, uh, and interrogate them in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a step forward. But for sure, you're right. I feel like it's a, quite an important thing to learn now. It's this kind of computer science integration. I feel like it's just going to become more and more important. Um, yeah, so for the final question, if you could upgrade any part of your brain, what would you upgrade? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, first it's like, oh, no, take that one out. But it's like, no, 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 why not? It's like, so yeah, yeah. I mean, at first I was going, oh, yeah, your, front, uh, your frontal cortex, so the kind of seat of, uh, you know, reasoning uh, and, uh, you know, intelligence and all the rest. I, I think I kind of settled on, you know, keeping my hippocampus and keeping that big. Uh, you know, I, I think... To some extent, what are you without your memories and your your kind of uh, the, the the thing that holds everything together? I mean, for me, you know, uh, I've been fortunate that we haven't had too much kind of time in the family, but it is so devastating. Is that yeah? You know, I'm happy for my hippocampus to be supercharged and kind <laughs> of you know set me up to maybe yeah. protect me in the future. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's I would have gone for the same. So. <laughs> Well, um, that's all I have, to be honest. But thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, it's really, really interesting. I, lo I love how you kind of, your inspiration came from that Oliver Sacks book, because well, I read it a couple of years ago, and I, I thought, because oh, it's just loads of little stories, and they're all so interesting. You know, the new Exactly, that's right, yeah. And I've forgotten most of the stories now. I might have to give it a read. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, so yeah think... on one level, it's not cutting edge sex, but it doesn't need to be. It's just yeah. so inspiring, thought-provoking, and, you know, what more do you need to, to get going in science than that? Yeah, yeah, that's no, really interesting. Well, um, thank you very much. Uh, I'll end the recording. Nice to meet you. Thanks yeah, for great questions.